0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 45, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you as a God of truth, that we can come to you, uh, completely rely on you, look to you for hope. It's been that way for hundreds, thousands of years. And it'll stay that way for hundreds and thousands of years. And um, just to have that security in you is such a blessing to know that you um, didn't leave us with nothing, but you left us with your Holy Spirit and your word to guide us. So I pray that you would guide us now. Amen. All right. Good morning. Please, um, please be seated. See if you can relate to this scenario. I'm guessing most people have been here before. You're waiting for someone to come home. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a teenage driver. They said they'd be home at 9.30. It's now 9.50 at night, and you're wondering where they are. So you shoot them a text. You say, are you okay? You wait five minutes, still no response. You figure, well, maybe they're driving right now, so I'll just give them a call. You call, no answer. Well, maybe they didn't get to it the first time. So you call again, and there's still no answer. Now you're a little bit worried. So you text whoever they were just hanging out with and say, hey, when did they leave? And they respond back pretty quickly, maybe like 30, 35 minutes ago. 30 minutes ago? It only takes 15 minutes to get home. Is something wrong? And now you're truly concerned. You're wondering, maybe they got in a car accident. Maybe they didn't bring their driver's license with them, and the police are looking at their body. They can't ID them, and they can't call me. And so you call one more time. Still no answer. At this point, you go grab your keys, you're going out the door, and as you close the door behind you, you see their car pull up. It turns out they just happened to stop by the store on the way home, and their cell phone had died, or they were listening to music too loud, didn't hear any of your calls. But all that you needed was a half hour of uncertainty for your imagination to run away from you and to assume the worst. Now, if you can relate to that, <clears throat> then it shouldn't be surprising that the brothers are terrified here before Joseph. Earlier this day, Benjamin had been found with Joseph's cup in his sack. And so now the brothers are returning back to this Egyptian ruler, wondering what might happen. Now, their past exchanges with him have been highly unpredictable and very emotional. Something strange or supernatural was happening with this person. Earlier, he had arranged them in birth order... And he'd been very hospitable. But just before that, they had all been in prison for a few days. And then he held on to Simeon for several months. At one point, they were all convinced that the Egyptian ruler was going to assault them, put them in bondage, and steal their donkeys. No one knew why this ruler wanted to see Benjamin and whether it was a trap. Moreover, God seemed to be against them. The last few chapters, they reveal a guilt-ridden dialogue between the brothers here as they interpret the trials over the last several months as God judging their sin. Even after 22 years, the sin against Joseph still weighed heavily on their minds. So as they return to this unpredictable ruler, they fear for Benjamin's life and what it would mean to their father or to them and their families. And of all the scenarios that they probably played out in their mind, this one was the last one to hear that this man was Joseph, their lost brother. And at first, it was terrible news to them. So verse 3 says they were dismayed. Other translations say terrified. The word used there is actually for um, describing men who have been in war, the paralyzing fear. And I imagine that their prior fear, their worries that kind of had played out as they were journeying back, that they were exponentially compounded as they realized this powerful and somewhat erratic ruler was their brother that they had betrayed. Perhaps they figured now Joseph has all of them in the same room. And he can finally pay back evil for evil. Maybe they irrationally think that they are dead men. And that Joseph, before he's about to kill them, wanted to reveal his own identity. Maybe akin to Enigo Montoya from uh, Princess Bride. Hello, my name is Joseph. You trick my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> now, while we see, while us, the readers here, we know Joseph's feelings and his purposes. His brothers didn't know any of this background. Joseph had had months to determine how he was going to re-engage his brothers. But his brothers learned this just in a moment, that his brother was not dead, but alive. He's not a slave, but he's the second most powerful man in Egypt and in the ancient world at that time. And how strange to realize that Joseph knew all along what he was doing these past several months... When Simeon was in prison, when he was kind of toying with them, although we know it was testing, they nearly ran out of food. Joseph knew what he was doing that whole time. So imagine how disorienting this would have been to piece together. Joseph himself is overwhelmed, despite not being surprised. Earlier, he'd been able to confront his brothers with a pretty stoic face and speak to them harshly. So why could Joseph at this moment no longer control or restrain himself? Verse 1 opens with the word then. So while his emotions may have been building over time, this reaction is a direct result of what had just transpired, which Lars led us through. So, chapter 44 that was the last straw, and Joseph could not continue to hide his identity any longer. So he had issued a series of tests. This wasn't the only one. He had tested their honesty, asking them about family details. He tested their greed, putting money back in their sacks. He had tested whether they'd abandon a brother keeping Simeon. And this was the last test. How would they react to favoritism, and did they have any concern for their father? He required only Benjamin to stay behind and said the rest could go back home in peace. But they all returned with Benjamin. And Judah puts his own life on the line in place of Benjamin's out of concern for his father. They had passed the test. They truly were different men. This display of selfless courage and concern, coupled with the news that his father probably had never gotten over Joseph and was still grieving for him, was too much for Joseph to hold back his tears. So Joseph broke down, cleared the room, and ended the deception, blurting out in Hebrew, I am Joseph is my father still alive? In some ways, this is an an unexpected question. Joseph had already asked multiple times about his father. He would say, and how is your father? Is he well? Is he still alive? But notice how this question is different. He says, is my father still alive? No doubt Joseph had been thinking about seeing his dad again. And so he's almost incredulously incredulously claiming aloud, is my dad really still alive? Will I actually get to see him again? I think he's almost 130 years old at this point. It's also quite admirable that the first statement after saying, I am Joseph, is not one of an accusation or condemnation, retaliation, or even a remark of self-pity, but it's one of concern for his father. After all the injustice that he had experienced, his focus was not on himself. But as we discussed, the brothers are not assured by this, but dismayed. So reading from verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve a remnant for you on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt." Joseph saw that his brothers were both terrified and dumbfounded. They were unable to respond to him. So he quickly puts their mind at rest, telling them not to be upset with themselves. Think about that. It's actually pretty amazing. Joseph is the one that's comforting them. With what had transpired in Joseph's life, there's really no room for bitterness anymore. With hindsight being 2020, Joseph can clearly see that God, the hand of God was in Joseph's life in all of this. And in these few verses, Joseph strongly asserted that the sovereignty of God and Joseph revealed that he had forgiven his brothers for what they did to him. He states very clearly in verse 8 that it was God, not them, that sent Joseph to Egypt. So now that Joseph had shared how God had a plan for Joseph's life, he goes on to share how he has a plan for their lives, reading in uh, verse 9 through 15. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother's, uh, brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This really is an astounding turn of events. In an age where we have all sorts of access to fictional storylines, movies, and implausible plot lines, like Lars said, I need to remind myself that this really happened. And consider the shock factor of this for a moment here. In a span of ten minutes, the brothers' perception of reality goes from Benjamin being a slave, and their father most likely dying from that, and Judah risking his life, to now Joseph being alive, being the ruler of all Egypt, having forgiven them and promised to provide for them, their families, and all their livestock. I mean, they probably hadn't processed yet what was going on before Joseph breaks down again and begins hugging them and embracing them. And we see that Benjamin returns affections to Joseph and cries on his neck, but as for the ten brothers who betrayed him, it says that they only after this they talked with him. I'm guessing they sort of kind of awkward hug back and didn't really know what was going on and still emotionally in shock, like, I'm not sure what you're doing. This turn of events for the brothers, from condemnation to salvation, is really just as miraculous as Joseph's story from rags to riches. God did not forget Joseph, but neither did he forget Jacob's family. Joseph had been faithful to God, but his brothers, by and large, had not. And yet, God still clearly intervened To provide for Jacob's family too, but in a way that they never would have dreamt of, despite Joseph getting previews. Now, Joseph had told his brothers to hurry and bring their dad down to Egypt. And you can see this emotional connection that he has to his father here and his appeal. He wants to see his dad. He hasn't seen his dad since he was 17 years old, over 22 years ago. That's more than half his life. But Joseph isn't the only one excited about this family reunion reading in uh, verses 16 through 20. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say... Do this, take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. You can see Joseph clearly had gained favor with all that he came in contact with. First with Potiphar and his whole household, and then even with prison and in the prison guards, and then now with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's servants. They were genuinely happy for Joseph. And notice when they report to Pharaoh, they say Joseph's brothers have come. They didn't say that zaphaneath Paneo's brothers have come. If you remember, Pharaoh had given him an Egyptian name. But we even see here in uh, verse 19, Pharaoh calls Joseph by his Hebrew name. There's almost an intimacy there. So Pharaoh cared for Joseph and insisted on caring for his whole extended family by giving them the very best. So Joseph makes good on his employer's relocation plan. He brings his whole family down. He sends them off, saying in verse 21, The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent his follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Now, a quick comment on verse 22. I'd always wondered, why 300 shekels, and why five clothes? Why those numbers in particular? Now, all the commentators agreed that the five sets of clothes corresponds to five more years of famine. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. But as for the 300 shekels, uh, one idea I read had, I think, a really compelling story or symbology behind it. According to the Talmud, if a Jew is sold to a non-Jew, they had to pay a penalty that was tenfold of the original price to redeem them back. And this was to discourage bringing Jewish slaves into a context where they wouldn't be able to practice Judaism. Now, the future Mosaic law would set a price or restitution price of 30 shekels for a slave if they were to be gored by an ox. So if the going price was 30 shekels for a slave and the penalty was tenfold if you sold to a gentile that would be 300 shekels of silver. So this is symbolic because Joseph is essentially paying the debt that his brothers had owed as a penalty for selling him into the Egyptians. He's paying his own debt to show them that he clearly has forgiven them. He doesn't hold it back because he's paying that that the 10 brothers owed to the one brother who wasn't part of it. So he sends the brothers off, clearly forgiven and provided for. And he tells them not to quarrel. Now he's likely anticipating them kind of duking it out, saying, all right, who's going to tell dad how Joseph is in Egypt? And they're probably talking, and you could envision Reuben saying, look, it was never my idea to begin with. And someone saying, yeah, that was Judah's idea to sell him. And then they could say, but it was your idea to use the tunic and the blood and whatever the case is. Joseph doesn't want them to focus on the past but the future. And so if Joseph had forgiven them, how much more should they forgive each other? So the brothers leave, and we see Jacob's reaction to the news, reading verses 26 through 28. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, Jacob was quick to believe the bad news about Joseph's death, but slow to believe the good news. And I think it would be, it'd be really hard to process Joseph living, and moreover, as ruler over Egypt, but also it's pretty hard to envision them playing such a cruel joke if this wasn't true. But ultimately, he believes... And you get the sense that he had never recovered from his son's death, thinking, it is enough. Now I can go die in peace, essentially. So picking up in the next chapter, reading verses 1 through 5. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, "I am God, the God of your Father. do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and joseph 's eyes shall clo- and joseph 's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. the sons of Israel, carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So Jacob takes all that he has, people and possessions and left his homeland of Canaan. He stops at Beersheba prior to entering Egypt. So this is at the southern border of Canaan here. Now, Beersheba was a place of significance to Jacob. It's where he grew up. And it's where Isaac, uh, his father Isaac, and his grandfather Abraham had lived for some time. And this is where the Lord had appeared to Isaac as well. And it was in the wilderness of Beersheba that Jacob has his dream of the ladder that extends up into heaven. God had promised to give this land, where he is right now, this land to Jacob's descendants, the land that he's about to leave. Surely this was going through Jacob's mind, as well as God's warning to Isaac to avoid Egypt. Perhaps Jacob was conflicted about whether going down to Egypt really was from God. So God appears to Jacob, assuring him that he could leave the land. And God repeats the promise of making him into a great nation, and that that would happen even in Egypt, and that they would come back. And it's also worth noting in uh, verse 4 that God assures Jacob that he himself would also go down to Egypt. Now, the gods of the ancient Near East, they were perceived to be local gods that were tied to regional locations. So Marduk was over Babylon and stayed in Babylon. And uh, Baal was over Canaan and stayed in Canaan. But as one commentator stated, the god of Jacob was not restricted by real estate. Also, another note, this is the last time we see um, recorded God speaking to an individual until Moses, about 400 years later. So with uh, divine sanction, Jacob now sets out from Beersheba, descending into Egypt. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read the remainder of our passage, verses 6 through 27, but I'm going to make a few comments. There's a a bunch of names. Um, First, be thankful for the name that your parents gave you. Some of these names here, some of them mean feast, finger, my ear, long upper lip, and young camel. So literally be thankful. Um, Second, these names demonstrate the faithfulness of God. They document how many people and animals were saved from starvation and brought down to Egypt where they're amply provided for. Only God could have orchestrated something like this. Third, these names document the beginning of a new chapter in a nation One commentator pointed out that the names would be better viewed as a list of charter members than as a census document. So we may see a list of names like this and find it boring, but it wouldn't have been so to the people of Israel. These are the people that started the nation. They're the famous adventurers leaving their home and going into a new land. And fourth, note the second part of um, verse 27 at the end there. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy, now, Jewish tradition held that the world was comprised of 70 nations. This comes from Genesis 10, where it gives all of Noah's descendants, and there's 70 of them. So there was the idea that the whole world could be represented by 70 people, at least, or 70 people groups at that time. So here we see a hint confirming the promise in, to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, where God says that, "...in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So that brings us to the end of our passage. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. There's a lot that's unfolded in this chapter and a half alone. The Joseph story has reached its climax. The trials and deceptions have now ended. The family is reunited. The story or the narrative is combined, and they're reconciled. Finally, things are looking up for all involved. Our package is packed with information. There could be many applications. We're only going to have time for three. And I'm going to have to be brief on each one, especially the first two. They're in your outline. So the first one is God is both sovereign and good. Second, we want to focus on faithfulness, not net impact. And third, biblical forgiveness and reconciliation are not cheap. So first application is one that we've seen throughout the series. And we're going to see it again because it's prominent. It's in uh, Joseph's story. Much more could be said about God's sovereignty than what we have time for this morning, but our passage includes, I think, some of the richest verses on God's sovereignty, and so I feel we need to spend some time on it. But here's the main point. Despite how you might feel about life's circumstances, God is in control and working, and his plan is for your ultimate good, and his plan is probably bigger than you, and possibly much bigger. Now, there'll be a slide above me as we unpack this point, Um, The first phase that Joseph went through was preparation and pre-positioning for God's plan. Now, while this was God's will, living out the details wasn't particularly pleasant. We know that Joseph didn't want to be a slave. The brothers say, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. We know that he was distraught in prison. He told the cupbearer not to forget him but to remember him because he wanted to get out of this place. He wasn't supposed to be there. He was trying to move things along. So Joseph didn't feel like he was where God wanted him or certainly not where he wanted to be. It didn't make sense. He wanted things to change, but he continued to trust God. With time and hindsight, Joseph attributed this entire sequence of events to God's own doing, not that of Joseph's brothers and not that of Pharaoh. It was God, not Pharaoh, that made him ruler over the land of Egypt. Joseph saw that God did have a plan for his life after all. And it was better than he could have ever imagined. Joseph was truly blessed. And we see this in how he names his children in uh, chapter 41. It says, Joseph called the name of his firstborn in Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The second, the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph was personally blessed. But this wasn't some sort of mercy recompensation for all the trials he'd been through. But this was so that he could be a blessing to others. And God's purpose in blessing Joseph was much bigger than just Joseph. And Joseph came to realize this, that his purpose was to preserve life, that of his family, the Egyptians, and even livestock. Joseph saw that there was purpose to his suffering, but I think his understanding probably only scratched the surface. God not only used Joseph's life to sustain his generation, but to grow an entire nation. God used Joseph to fulfill a prophecy he gave to Abraham even before Joseph's father had been born. And so God used Joseph to bring Israel to Egypt to provide for them. But more importantly, to grow them into a nation, a nation that he would ultimately call out of Egypt in such a way that the whole world would know about God his power, and in a way that we remember it today. And so do the Jews. And we have it recorded for us. God had a plan that was much, much bigger than Joseph or Joseph's family, and they, though they did surely benefit from it. Even down to placing Israel in Goshen. Now, Goshen is in the district of Ramses, which is near the royal court, which is an important fact for Moses and Aaron 400 years later as they kept visiting Pharaoh over and over again. The point is that though life may feel discouraging... And difficult and sometimes even meaningless, God's not winging it. He has a plan, and you can trust him because he's faithful and good and cannot be thwarted. Our suffering has purpose, too, for our ultimate good. Perhaps not reaped in earthly blessings, but certainly manifested in spiritual blessings and refined character. Some of us may get the privilege in this life to have the hindsight as Joseph did. But others may need to trust God's goodness and faithfulness all the way up into the end, and perhaps to understand the why only in the next life to come. And for those who do get a glimpse into God's plan, I bet it only scratches the surface. There are countless stories that I wish our congregation had time to study about how missionaries dedicated their lives to what seemed like relative futility, and all they reaped in this life was toil, the loss of loved ones, pain, and criticism from the church. But their life and suffering ushered in an enormous harvest in many locations. But they would realize that only after they'd passed into the glory, where they'd then meet the fruits of their labor. I don't have time for this story now, but I would encourage you to listen to John Piper's message on um, the life of John Gibson Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Um, just go to desiringgod.org and search John Patton. It's Patton with one T. Excellent story. Um, So I'll read one quote from Walton that was too good to omit, make a comment on it, and then we need to move on. I cannot pretend to offer any language that resolves all the problems of reconciling God's sovereignty with the presence of evil in the world. It should be noted, however, that the Bible's own attempt to reconcile these issues is not represented by detailed and technical philosophical treatises. Instead, the important theology is clarified by illustration, Because as we all know, where language may fail, illustration can succeed. The story of Joseph, therefore, can stand as a living treatise on the theology of God's sovereignty. And I think we would do well to remember this point. It's really easy to get wrapped around the axle when you're thinking about specific details about how God operates. Yet it's very edifying to look at the overall process and reason for why he operates. In a similar way, um, I do... I do flood modeling, so this is what came to mind for me. Um, no one can fully describe or model a river's flow regime. There's going to be different eddies and rapids and depth variations and bubbles. We don't know any of that, but what we do know, and what we can observe, is the overall force and direction of the current. Maybe your life this year feels like you're stuck in one of those eddies. or you keep going through sequences of rapids and getting sucked down to and you're like, "Why? What is, what is this about? What is happening?" Rather than trying to analyze the purpose behind individual events and understand God's way, we'd be better served by stepping back and observing, is there an overall trend in what God might be teaching me or doing in my life? Don't try and figure out where you're at right now, where you need to be, and chart your own course to swim against the current. But look at the current and be carried along with it. Um, The second application to our passage this morning is to focus on faithfulness, not net impact. And this could be stated multiple ways. But what I want to get at is this. It was Joseph's faithfulness to God that honored him, not his office or influence. I'll need to be terribly brief, but I want to highlight a common trap for believers. We look at this passage and we say, Wow, from slave to sovereign, from rags to riches, from prison to palace, that's amazing. God really worked in his life. And that is true. But what if Joseph hadn't become ruler over all Egypt? Would God have been any less faithful or trustworthy? Or would God have been any less pleased with Joseph? See, Joseph's story is similar to many fairy tales. The rejected brother becomes a ruler, reconciles with family, provides the best of the land, and everyone lives happily ever after. But you know full well as I do that life is rarely a fairy tale. Many things go awry and are never righted, And you go through trials and testing, and you emerge tired, not prominent. And not everyone is married happily ever after. The danger to such an inspiring story like Joseph is that with all that takes place, we tend to focus on the end result and not on the journey. And if if Joseph had lived an ordinary life, his character would have been no less admirable. God would have been no less faithful or present. But the story would have been less memorable. In our relatively plain lives compared to Joseph, we may unnaturally elevate his status. And we may, but we need to remember two things. With all that happened to Joseph, first, it was God that moved all the pieces for his own glory. And second, the value of service to God is measured more by the character of the servant than by the capability of the servant. God is more concerned about the faithfulness with which you have walked than where you have been able to walk to. In other words, God's goal is your sanctification, your personal character, not your position or impact. And so that brings us to our last application. Biblical forgiveness and reconciliation aren't cheap. Cheap is something that's inexpensive and low quality. But forgiveness and reconciliation can be emotionally and financially costly. But the end result is worth it. It's meant to be effective and restorative. While Joseph never says the words, I forgive you, it's clear that he has forgiven them. And although his brothers had sinned against them, he's the one that's comforting them, telling them not to be angry with themselves because this was God's plan. And while the brothers hadn't had the opportunity to confess or apologize, their behaviors showed repentance and that their hearts had truly changed. Our story is kind of like an Old Testament microcosm of what ideal forgiveness and reconciliation might look like. Joseph sinned against He sees genuine repentance, he initiates reconciliation, the family's reunited, and everybody wins. At the surface, that example may seem a little simplistic. The process of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation isn't always straightforward or black and white. Forgiveness can be very complex, especially with repeat offenses, which we can be notorious for. You probably recall Peter asking Jesus for a clarification, Lord, how often will I forgive my uh, my brother's sin against me? And I forgive him. Let me read that again. <laughs> Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. Jesus then told the parable of the unforgiving servant, illustrating that if God has forgiven us so large a debt, then shouldn't we be able to give, forgive each other relatively small debts by comparison? If you recall, though, at the end of the parable, was the servant forgiven? He was not. He was placed in jail for the equivalent of a life sentence or eternal sentence. The servant had been forgiven earlier on. He had begged for mercy and the ruler showed mercy. But his hypocrisy showed that he hadn't actually changed. It's not that he wanted to change, he just didn't want the consequences. And so he was not forgiven in the end. And that parable is one of vertical forgiveness, of God forgiving man. But I believe we see a similar lateral principle in our story today that forgiving one another is conditional, and it occurs in stages. So we might wonder, at what point did Joseph forgive his brothers? I think our word forgive is not precise enough because there's really different forms. Clearly, Joseph did not reconcile with his brothers until they had passed the test. These spanned several months to a year and involved multiple events. But I believe that if the brothers had not shown reformed behavior, that Joseph would not have reconciled with them. So is it wrong of someone to withhold reconciliation until they see repentance in the offender? Or should we freely forgive and offer forgiveness and wait for the offender then to come around? I would argue that the ball is in the court of the offender until... He or she has repented, whether in behavior, attitude, or an apology, that the offended should not extend restorative forgiveness. But once repentance is shown, the offended cannot withhold forgiveness, and restoration needs to take place. I think we see this in Luke 7, 3, when Jesus said, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, ...and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Unrepentant sin is met with rebuke. Repentant sin is met with forgiveness. Even repeated repented sin, like seven times a day. Forgiveness may often be undeserved, but it is not unconditional. Forgiveness is available to all, but not as an automatic blanket application. It does require a response or a change in the offender... God doesn't offer a blanket forgiveness without repentance or confession, and neither should we. So this might seem to contradict kind of what we've all learned about quickly forgiving one another. We know that forgiveness is just as much for the benefit of the offended as it is for the offender. You've probably heard the quote from St. Augustine, uh, Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And that's true. We should never hold on to sin and bitterness. We need to release that. At this point, I think it would be helpful to differentiate between maybe two different forms of forgiveness. Um, Ken Sandy, in his book, Peacemaker, he distinguishes between positional forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. And I quote, Positional forgiveness is a decision not to dwell on the hurtful incident or seek vengeance or retribution in thought, Word or action. Instead, you will keep yourself in a position of forgiveness in which you pray for the other person and are ready to pursue complete reconciliation as soon as he or she repents. End quote. I would be, I, I would argue that uh, Joseph had offered or achieved positional forgiveness much earlier on in our story. We can't say when for sure, other than obviously when he had named Manasseh, he had for, he was no longer bitter. He had let go of all that hardship in his father's house. Now, part of the ability to positionally forgive is trusting in a good and sovereign God. This enables to release any bitterness without feeling vulnerable or like you've lost a competitive edge or any kind of strategic retribution because you aren't pursuing retribution. That's in God's court. He's the judge. Now, Sandy defines transactional forgiveness as a commitment not to bring up the offense again or to use it against the other person, not to talk about the incident to other people, and not to allow the incident to hinder your personal relationship with the offender. He reasons that until the person repents, it would actually be inappropriate to offer transactional forgiveness because it may still be necessary to confront that person in their sin, to bring it up again, and maybe even to change or end that relationship. And I think these are helpful distinctions in processing what it looks like to Quickly and unconditionally release bitterness and offer positional forgiveness, yet to wisely wait and hold back on restorative transactional forgiveness until you see that repentance. But when there is repentance, there is no cop-out. There is no right to withhold forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, when it comes to vertical forgiveness, we are blessed to have a loving God who is ready to forgive. He's already taken all the necessary actions to cleanse you from your sin and guilt. But your forgiveness is still conditional. There's an action on your part to humble your spirit, to repent, to receive that forgiveness. And this forgiveness is fully restorative, and it's made possible only through Jesus. In our story, we see Joseph as a type of Christ in many ways. Both were betrayed for uh, silver and falsely accused. And then we see Joseph proclaim that God sent him before Israel to prepare the way and to preserve life. To store up grain for the world, to have many survivors, to give us the best of the land to his family, who is told to leave all of their belongings behind. I think that's a clear depiction of the gospel. Joseph was likely unaware of these gospel parallels, but listen to it this way. God sent Jesus to preserve and save life, to give you the best life to come, to enter salvation without any of your own deeds, to leave all your belongings behind. You don't need any success from this world. You don't need any attempt at righteousness. They won't do you any good. Just leave them behind. Come and be near to Jesus. He will provide. So have you done that? And if not, do not tarry, but come to Jesus. He has already gone before you and stored up the righteousness that can be yours. All you need to do is come. He has taken care of the rest. Now, it's up to you to leave a life of self-independence behind, a life that, in this case, would only lead to poverty and ruin. You can be confident that Jesus has a much better life in store for you. He has made preparations for your journey. He's given you the instructions how to get there right here. It's a sample of his riches. It's all that you need to nourish your soul along the way. So please stand as we thank God in prayer for his forgiveness for our salvation. Dear Father, we thank you for um, that you are ready to forgive. Um, Not because we've done anything, but because you've already taken care of it all. Because you are known by your character of love and patience and goodness. And that you are approachable. We can come before your throne because of what your son has done. Thank you for the positional and transactional forgiveness that you've offered each one of us to be with you, to come near to you, and to have a fulfilling and joyful eternal life. In your name, amen. You're dismissed.